Gracious Father, we thank you for, again, allowing us to gather. We thank you for this platform of Zoom that we can meet in this, uh, in this manner. We ask most of all that you will tune our hearts to you, no matter uh, what venue or, or process we may go through in the future to be able to meet and worship in your name as the visible church, uh, as the body of, of Word of Grace. But we, we thank you and we are we're grateful um, for all your kindness and all your mercy that you extend to us in every form and fashion. And we ask that you would help us uh, to trust you, to love you. We ask that you would take your word and minister to us this morning. And we ask that you would hear our hearts, uh, that you would hear our, our hearts that uh, cry out in confession to you, knowing that we are weak and we are feeble and we still wrestle with sin as your children. And our hearts ache and they long to know you more fully. They long to be uh, continually, continually cleansed, that we might walk in righteousness, that our lives might reflect your glory, that we might worship you well, that our worship might grow sweeter and more honoring and pleasing to you. And without the enabling grace of your indwelling spirit, uh, we have no capacity to know you or worship you as we should. We come to confess our weakness. We come to confess our frailties. We come to confess our great need for you moment by moment, breath by breath, that you may be exalted among your people here. We ask that we, that you would meet with us and strengthen us this morning and that our worship would be just that, honoring and pleasing in your sight. We ask it in the sweet name of Christ. Amen. This morning, we'll be uh, rejoining the book of Acts. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 22. Acts chapter 16, and we'll be looking at, excuse me, verses 16 through 23. I made an error there in putting up uh, the, the reading this morning, but we're going to look all the way through verse 23. So I'll read that uh, uh, for us this morning. I'm sorry, I, when, we, when I sent the information to Jesse earlier, I forgot to put in chapter 23. I believe he has it up there now. Uh, so we'll begin in verse 16, read through verse 23. Here God's word, God's word says to us, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was uh, bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when our masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Well, here we see 
our uh, our dear brothers, these band of missionaries. And again, this is Paul and Silas, and also they're joined there by Luke and Timothy. So we got our four uh, missionary brethren there, and um, we know Luke is there by by in, the, the using the we there. Uh, so he's kind of included himself. So Luke was along for the journey at this point. And so this is now they've reached into Europe. They're at Philippi. They've entered Europe. And now in Europe, they're going to face their very first opposition from Gentiles. Now we've seen them face opposition before in their first missionary journey, but that was primarily, primarily from the Jewish community, if you'll recall. And I must say, uh, the, although the, the opposition from the Jewish community was, was vile and, and vicious and, and heinous in its own regard, nonetheless, at, at a baseline, it at least had a more noble cause. There was a theology, a, a, an approach to the one true God that was, uh, that was being uh, defended there from the, from the Jewish position. So it was far more noble than this Gentile opposition, if you will, to some degree, and that the Gentile uh, opposition, we're going to find out, is purely motivated by greed, by covetedness, um, just the, the falling nature of sinful man on display. But nonetheless, our, our missionary brethren here are going to face their first opposition from the Gentile world, and sadly to say, it won't be their last but uh, we'll see them prevail uh, by the grace of God again and again and again to God's glory. And that's an exciting part of the book of Acts. But also, I want you to know that uh, in, in, this, in these few verses here, we're going to really, the text kind of uh, uh, pulls back the curtain here, as Scripture does from time to time in the book of Acts uh, in particular. We're going to pull back the curtain from humanity and take a look, if you will, behind the scenes at the bigger picture, the larger cosmic battle that is waged between God and Satan, uh, the leader of the fallen angels. Of course, uh, the battle is settled. Uh, God is, is, is never, it's never in doubt. God is in full authority, but Satan is allowed to reign. He is the prince of this world, and he is allowed to reign for a period of time uh, over this world uh, in space and time in this world that God has created. So in that sense, I refer to the greater cosmic battle, which and in some sense is no battle at all, but yet it is exercised for a period of time uh, knowing the outcome, but nonetheless, the ramifications are real, and the exercise of that battle is real. And we see that curtain, that veil sort of pulled back for us in this text, because what we're looking at here is really an assault by Satan, an assault by Satan on the gospel. Uh, and so we'll, we'll look into that as we get into the text. But much like uh, uh, J.R. Tolkien was in his um, literary epic, The Lord of the Rings, uh, did so well in sort of pulling that, that veil back from what we see in the workings of mankind and getting behind to the real reality of the greater spiritual battle that is truly at hand. This text sort of, uh, again, like that, opens up that reality for us. Uh, so the, the, the Gospels reached Europe. We have our first uh, conversion um, this little woman named Lydia, and then we find out that her whole household also comes to faith, and that is the beginning of the first church there in Philippi, which is the first church 
um, in Europe. So a wonderful little start here. Now our missionary band has entered into Europe and we have the beginning of the first church there in Europe. First church made up there of all these new believers. And wherever you have a nice church plant and we see the, the gospel uh, take seed, the, the seed take root and a church planted, well, guess who shows up rather quickly? That's right. Um, our, our arch enemy, Satan. And we see Satan show up here uh, as this new church is planted rather quickly. He appears on the scene. But what I want you to see right up front, let me just say this up front before we get into some of the details of the text. As Satan does appear on the scene and he appears um, uh, as a roaring lion. And he also appears, appears in, in, in uh, great deception. But he works his worst here. He is, a, he is we see the, the vile work of Satan at its worst in, in this scenario. And yet the church still stands. So I want to just lay that out right up front. We see Satan raging here, and yet the church still stands. And that is always true. Satan, where Satan does his worst work, we see that the church remains. She is pure. She is pure in Christ, and she will stand forevermore. So uh, we see that beautiful truth right up front. As he works his worst, the church remains. But that brings us uh, to our first point here. And I want you to see up front the demonic declaration, the demonic declaration. And we're going to look at that in verses 16 through 18. So look there with me, beginning in verse 16. And it says, uh, <clears throat> And it happened that we were going to the place of prayer, and a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. And uh, she was one who was prospering, or masters were prospering from her fortune telling. Now, as it translates to us in English, we don't see a lot there, but uh, the Greek text gives us a little more detail from the language. So what's really going on here is we have a slave girl, but she's marked off as being one who's identified with that mythical uh, uh, spirit of Python. It's, it's a, um, a, a Greek mythical spirit of a serpent, a serpent, and that serpent was particularly known for guarding the temple and oracles of Apollo, Apollo there at Delphi, Delphi being that famous city there in Corinth. So this is a, a, a spirit that's identified with the, the serpent python, and again, that's from a, a, a mythical Greek understanding of the Greek gods, but in reality, so that's what the culture there is seeing her as, this, this young girl who is possessed by this python spirit, the spirit of the python associated with the god Apollo. But what's happening in reality is this young girl is possessed. She is possessed by a demon. And her uh, usefulness to her masters is this, that she is a fortune teller, we might think of it as one who falls in. Again, the Greek text kind of indicates that it's one who tells fortunes uh, or sometimes even uh, they're known as uh, uh, a ventriloquist. But there's a falling into a trance-like state and uh, a very erratic behavior and then an uttering of the fortune telling. What's going on here is a demonic uh, possession of this young slave girl and her masters are profiting off of her 
uh, usefulness as she gives fortune, as she foretells fortunes, and does so in this very dramatic trance-like state. So that's kind of the background setting there, and they equate her to uh, uh, the, 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 um, the mythical serpent, uh, Python, associated with Apollo. So they, they uh, equate her with the gods of their pagan culture. So that's where they give her identity. In the big picture, this is demonic um, possession of this girl. And she quickly here seizes upon an opportunity to go after the, uh, the missionaries here. And so what I want you to see up front is that Satan is indeed the father of lies. And we're going to look a little bit about how he works here in this scenario to try to offset the work of the gospel that has now reached into Europe. So uh, the gospel has reached Europe. Satan has had a stronghold there. Uh, he, he, this, this woman is a, is a plaything uh, of his wickedness, this young girl. And now she is used as a pawn in his efforts to, um, to oppose the gospel. But Christ now, the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, the power of God is now at that point in time reached into Europe. And this demon is on a short lease, if you will. So his number is up, his time is up quickly, and he knows it. And that's where we're going to see the language fall out there. So continue looking with me. In verse 17, it says, this girl, uh, this possessed girl was following after Paul and us. And there that's um, Luke speaking, referring to all four of the missionaries there, himself included. And she kept crying out. And there that crying out and saying, yeah, again, the, the Greek language gives us more of a picture of the trance-like state in which this uh, is applied. She was crying out and she was saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And so when we hear this language, again, note that Satan is the father of all lies. But yet here we see the father of all lies speaking truth, right? What she's saying is true. That's absolutely true. So what's going on here? Well, in many cases, and certainly here, all falsehood uh, comes with a mixture of truth. So what she's speaking is truth, but again, this demon has no intention uh, of uh, supporting the gospel. This demon is absolutely opposed to the truth of the gospel. And um, God is certainly aware of that. And, and so is Paul. So what's, uh, what's the spirit doing here? It seems to be supporting Christ, but what's going on? So my question is, why did the spirit prepare the people to hear the gospel? It almost seems like the spirit here is acting like uh, a John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Gentiles there to, to hear the gospel. Um, so what's going on here? What's taking place? Well, uh, in this case, the spirit is speaking with deception. Now, what's being said is true, but the deception is, is uh, often in Satan's uh, battle against the gospel. Deception, or sometimes there's, there's outright abrupt uh, confrontation and sometimes there's deception. In this case, it's deception. So what the Spirit is saying is true. But if you will, the Spirit through this slave girl is saying that these men are servants of the Most High God. And they're coming to tell you to tell you of the way of salvation. And at the same time, the demon is shaking his fist at God as he's saying it. And so 
there's this effort of, of, if you will, creeping into the church to do harm by corruption, corrupting the truth. So there's a double way of resisting the gospel, if you will, sometimes an open rage and sometimes subtle deception. And what we're seeing here is an effort at subtle deception. You know, Satan is indeed the angel of light. But notice there in verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. And Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Now, here's what we have to see up front. Look, if Paul allowed this testimony, if you will, of the demonic spirit to continue on, there would be a, um, a blending of the light of the gospel would become entangled with the darkness of this demonic lie. So the spirit is saying truth, but it's really an agitation. It's really a mockery. It's really a saying of truth and a shaking at your fist. If you will, uh, the Satan's there, I, I, the, 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 the demon is there saying, I know who you are. I know that you're messengers of the one of the, of the most high God. And I know that my time is up. And so he's, he's working every angle to try to uh, um, do anything to resist the gospel as long as possible. And so Paul knows not to allow this. Now, there's been a time that, that transpired there. It's almost like he would sort of hoping that the, the girl would stop on her own. But the, the spirit persists. And as long as the spirit persists, then the more time that that's allowed, the more time that it seems maybe this demonic spirit, this slave girl actually has the greater authority. Actually, she must give validity to the message that Paul will speak. Actually, she has more influence over the culture if this is allowed to continue. That actually she must endorse these apostles. And there again, there is the subtle sliding in, uh, creeping in to deceive later. So there's a period of time that goes by, but eventually Paul will head this off. And he does so there in verse 18. So he commands the spirit to come out. But notice how he does this. He grows weary. And he must stop the arrogance. That's an increasing stability here of this demonic spirit that's being allowed to take root if he allows it to continue. But it's better for the spirit to be silenced rather than to seem to be accepted as an endorsement. And at some point, Paul has to lay down the law, and he does so because the endorsement is a disrespectful endorsement. And Paul does so by calling on the name of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the Most High God. But notice, I, I want you to... to to note Mark chapter 1, verse 34. I want you to note this text. And this is this is Christ in his earthly ministry. And this is the language here. Speaking of Christ, and it said, He healed many who were ill with various disease and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And that's what we see here. We see this 
demon possessed this young slave girl knows exactly who Christ is. He's acknowledging that, but it's acknowledgement uh, with um, a rebellion. It's an acknowledgement of rebellion. It's an acknowledgement of shaking the fist at God as he acknowledges this. It's a, it's a taking of, of a last stand here, if you will. Why? Why? Because this demon is a demon of Satan. And what does it say about Satan? What does Satan say about himself in Isaiah 14, 14? This is what he said. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see the language there? The language is the same. Like the most high God. And when this language is used to describe God, it's always used in the context of describing God as God, the creator and possessor of the universe. So Satan and his demonic cord never wants to be like God in, ter in terms of God's grace, in terms of God's wisdom, in terms of God's love. There's no desire there. Satan wants to be like God in terms of his power. Satan wants to supplant God and rule the universe. That's his heart's desire, as he proclaims there in Isaiah 14, 14. So Satan and his, and his demonic horde want to be like God in power. But God, again, has come calling in Europe. So here, again, I want you to see this is a last stand. We look behind the scenes of what's going on in this poor slave girl's life and what's going on in this pagan culture and all the darkness and light has come to town. That's what's really happening. And now the demonic hordes are going to be chased over the cliff, so to speak. So you're seeing the beautiful picture of the 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 real cosmic battle that takes place in the spiritual realm behind uh, the reality of man here uh, in this context. And at this point, if you will, now the boss has come to town and the darkness of Europe is about to fade. We see that little spark start in there with Lydia. And now I do believe that also included in that little church is this slave girl. I can't be definitive about that, but certainly the demon is exercised, and I believe that the little girl was brought to salvation. Again, that's certainly a bit of speculation, so don't hold my feet to the fire on that one, but uh, it may just be a, a tug at the heartstrings, but I certainly, I, I do believe that, and what a, what a wonderful picture, regardless, God has, God has, has, uh, uh, has planted a church here, and, and Europe is about to explode with light, and the, the cry of the Reformation comes to mind for me after darkness, light. And here we see the beginning of that very first spark. And God is so gracious to us that he allows us to see it in the context of Scripture here that pulls back the veil. And we see the bigger picture of this demonic spirit um, shaking his fist for the last time and then being crushed by the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly who Paul calls on here, right? So pause wise here, and I want you to take note because it's good for us. He, there's a time that goes by, and then he enters this conflict. But he doesn't enter the conflict with this, with this demon without first coming to Christ, right? He arms himself with the power of God. So he doesn't come in and say anything to this demon. He doesn't confront this demon or say anything until he has come and armed himself with the power of God. Then he makes this proclamation. Then he claims Jesus Christ as deity, right? Because note, this, the demon here has been going around now for some time. 
just repeating in a trance-like state through this little slave girl that, hey, this is the most high God. These are servants of the most high God. The most high God is in town, and they're going to tell you the way of salvation. Again, it's with disgust. Again, it's with an arrogance and, and, and a, a hateful uh, a mocking uh, despise. And certainly an attempt to suddenly slide in and have influence within uh, any way possible to, to break up the church. But it's, it's with disrespect. And Paul doesn't address it until he arms himself with the power of God. And then he comes and he proclaims Jesus to be that very God that the Spirit is speaking of, the Most High God. That's the name he, go, he calls upon there, right? So in verse 18, he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, according to the character of Jesus Christ, according to the very identity of Jesus Christ, I, I command you according to uh, the, the second person of the triune Godhead, God himself. I command you upon the character of the second person of the triune Godhead who has come down and taken upon flesh, lived a sinless life. And died a vicarious death on the cross for the place in the place of all who repent and believe on him, that they might be made right with their God, their sins forgiven, declared righteous, and the wrath of God rightly abiding on them now bore in the body of Jesus Christ there on the cross. That deity, the one true God, that's the name I invoke upon you. And so he calls on the name of Christ and he says there come out of her. He exercises this demon out in the name of Christ. And what happens? It came out that very moment. And there, I believe at that moment, there was the opening. And I believe this girl again was added to the faith. But nonetheless, that's the reality of, of what Paul does here. And that's the wisdom of Paul in uh, exercising this demon it reminds me a little later on in the book of acts we'll come to this in acts 19 there were um these jewish exorcists and uh they had they had seen some of, of uh the christians now they would see some exercising of demons from the christian community that, that had arisen and so um uh, Acts 19 tells us where these jewish exorcists said you know they, they went out and they tried to exercise this demon but if you recall the, the, demon, the demon sprang upon them and, and roughed them up a bit and ripped all their clothes off and, and uh, sent them out uh, screaming to the streets. And the evil spirit answered them. And this is what the evil spirit said. I recognize Jesus. And I recognize Paul because that's the way they began. They came in and they said, in the name of Jesus and in the name of Paul. We uh, they, they they were trying to exercise this demon. And so they said, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Paul, come out. And his response was, I recognize Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? And there, there's the key right there. Paul addresses this demon only after he's armed himself with the power of God. And then he proclaims the name of Christ, the character of Christ, the authority of Christ. And the demon is cast out at that moment. And so we might look at this at Paul's actions here. And I guess this one question could come up. So let me try to head it off. 
what about Philippians 1.18? And in Philippians 1.18, we see Paul saying very straightforwardly, you know, whether the gospel is preached with, with uh, pretense or whether it's preached with in truth, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I'm good with it. I rejoice in it. So uh, it, it seems that the, the, the de demonic spirit here through the slave girl was, was proclaiming truth. What he was saying was true. That's correct. But here's the difference. Here's what was going on in this case. In this case, there, there's a bit of difference. So we, we have to be careful with trying to apply Philippians 1.18 here. It could appear that the slave girl had authority to toy with Paul in this circumstance. And that's what's not being allowed because indeed Paul is a minister of the gospel. And, so, and it could appear here again that uh, the spirit indwelling the slave girl had greater authority, had more, had greater influence over the culture, uh, had, was in the position of advocating for or against these missionaries. And so Paul then armed with the power of God, proclaiming the name of Christ, just cuts that off at the root. But that's what's happening here. If this was, were to be allowed to go on, it could appear that the slave girl was toying with Paul, that the endorsement was necessary, if you will. And there, the subtle blending of the, the demonic uh, being and the demonic lies would be entangled with the glorious light of the gospel. And that's what could not happen. So that, had, that there had to be this line drawn. There had to be this stage set where there was a clear-cut picture of God opposed to Satan. And there was this clear-cut picture of the casting away of Satan that was evident for all to see a casting away of this demon by the power of Jesus Christ. Christ was the one who was in authority here. It was Christ's name that was invoked. It was Christ's power that cast this demon out and Christ alone. And that's what had to be addressed in that context for all to know. And it had to be very public. And that's exactly what built up to the climax here of this moment when Paul is then uh, calls upon Christ to cast the demon out there in a very visible and open manner. And so that's the difference. That's what's going on in that regard. But then we might think about this, this exercising of the demon and um, this, this little slave girl being demon possessed and, and the history of, of Satan being able to, to work in this way. In, in humanity. I don't know if you've, if you've thought of that, but the question has come to mind for me. So uh, maybe I could address that a little bit, touch on that for a moment. Why? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever wondered, but I've often wondered why. Uh, that is, why does um, Christ allow, or why does God allow this Satan have this kind of, of power, if you will? We know that he has uh, a time that he will be free to roam about this world, working his woes. We know that, but we're fallen. Humanity has fallen. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Our, our eyes, our spiritual eyes are blind. Our spiritual ears are closed. Um, our, our hearts are, are darkened. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no capacity in and of ourselves to know God and to be made right with God. And so you, it almost seems like a piling on here. Uh, why is Satan given such power? What's the, what's the point? And I don't 
claim to be able to address all the facets uh, that might be entailed there. But let me try to just uh, maybe briefly sum up a few uh, realities to why. Why Satan's allowed to have this kind of freedom and this kind of power, if you will, amongst fallen men. Well, to tackle that, let's just think about the power that has gone forth here in Paul proclaiming the name of Christ and Christ casting out this uh, demonic spirit. What's happened there? Well, again, there's a myriad of things that we could uh, mention, but let me just address a couple of things that's happened there. And so we can kind of uh, build a little foundation for why. Why Satan has been given such power to do these things among men. Well, the casting out makes the power of Christ known. That was definitive. And there again, in the cosmic battle, it's just set, in, it's just set clearly. The power of Christ is made known. He cast this demon out, and it happened immediately. And it also demonstrates this reality. There's no fellowship with Satan. None. And we say, well, you say, well, yes, brother, of course, that's an obvious. It is an obvious, but uh, how lightly we take some of these things at times. We can fall prey to just being asleep at the wheel. There is a cosmic battle that is far beyond our power. And it rages in the world that we live in. And sometimes we just uh, are so accustomed to it, so used to it that we just pass by. And casually pass by and don't see the depths of the evil and understand the magnitude of the grace in Christ. So it, it elevates, it heightens our spiritual sensitivity, if you will, to see it in this, in this light, in this regard. And so this demonstrates, this casting out demonstrates that there is no fellowship with Satan. And the power and authority to cast this demon out comes from Christ alone. So Christ purged this girl. She pur he purged her from uh, uh, the, the seduction of this spirit. And that's a glorious, beautiful thing in and of itself. It's a glorious picturing of the power and majesty of Jesus Christ at work amongst fallen men. But why? Why are these demonic spirits allowed to deceive fallen men? Why that route? I mean, it seems, again, like a little bit of piling on. Well, one, it pictures, it's a picture. It's a vivid, powerful picture. And it pictures the just reward for great unthankfulness. And our men's Bible study, we've been talking about this for the last few weeks. Uh, and Mark has been faithful to remind us of this as we're, as we're going through the Bible study uh, of uh, Romans chapter 1, chapter 2. And uh, it's, it's in chapter 1, we see there in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, the great unthankfulness of mankind towards God that brings about the reality of our fallen state. Listen to the language here in Romans 1, chapter 21. For even though they knew God, and we're speaking of all humanity here, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. You see the hideousy of the human mind that doesn't give thanks, futile 
and their speculations are all a speculation. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So that is sobering language, and that's the reality here. And that's a picture of Satan having this much power to exercise among fallen men. It's not overkill. It's sobering. And it brings to light the majesty of the grace of God that is exercised among fallen men all the more to the glory of God. So here, here we see the great unthankfulness of God pictured, the, the heinousness of that pictured in this reality of Satan having this kind of power, the power to toy with fallen men. It's a picture of just judgment. The just reward, if you will, for unthankfulness. <clears throat> it pictures just punishment for the contempt of God's light. Now, again, this is uh, shades of the same thing, but I believe I, I need to try to, to set that out and make uh, and, and specify that reality. There's much light, much light, Romans tells us, clearly in creation, so much light in creation alone that we are held guilty. So that's not, uh, uh, that's a general revelation. That's not the, the uh, special revelation of scripture and the truth of the gospel, but it's a general revelation that is enough to hold all mankind guilty before God and righteously judged by a holy God. Just the little light of creation, knowing from there, there should be a thankfulness in our heart. So here's the picture. It goes a little farther here. And that's contempt. And that's what's going on here. Everything from this demonic spirit coming through this slave girl is contempt for the gospel, contempt for the majesty of God. That's what you're seeing. It's contempt for Paul and uh, his brethren being missionaries of the gospel there. There's contempt in saying these truthful, uh, this, this, in making these truth claims concerning uh the God of glory, the, the, the most high. That's true, but it's held in contempt. And that's the point that's brought out in Satan having this kind of power. There's contempt for the God's light. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 speaks to this very well. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may uh, that they may all, that, excuse me, in order that they may all be judged, that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. And so there's uh, a little, a little snapshot of that reality. And for this reason, Satan is allowed to have this much free reign for a period of time and, and dabble this deeply into the fallenness of humanity to stir such wickedness. It's a picture. It's a picture of our fallen nature, a picture of the holiness of God and the severity of our unthankfulness and our contempt for the light of God that has been displayed to all men. But that brings us lastly uh, to the glaring greed. I want you to see the glaring greed there. Notice that in verses 19 to 23. But when they, uh, uh, but when her masters saw <clears throat> that their hope for profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. 
And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept, to be observed, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, condemning, uh, excuse me, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. So here I want you to see the glaring greed, that glaring greed being of the slave girl's masters. And note here, I want you to see as a follower of Christ, as um, those who are genuine blood-bought followers of Christ, as we're uh, gathered here as a local body, um, a visible church, through whatever means it may be, as we walk our Christian life, as we, we live out our calling for God, that God has placed upon us in our uh, unique context. Know this. We are to be content with a righteous act. And we're to be content with a righteous act, even when it brings us harm. So be content with a righteous act, even when it brings you harm. And in most cases, for your spiritual good, especially when it brings you harm. Now, that's counterintuitive, yes, but that's a spiritual truth. That's a spiritual reality. And we see that play out here in the lives of these disciples. Now, that'll carry on into the, uh, a few verses later as we uh, see them being jailed and we see God's work in bringing them and freeing them from that uh, jail. But the spiritual truth uh, is groundwork for that is being laid right here. Be content. If there is a righteous act, be content. No matter if it brings you harm, be content. So here these missionaries are experiencing a little opposition from the Gentiles. Again, it's the very first time, but it comes in a pretty big wave. And we see Satan at work here, but his tactics change, right? So now he's using these angry, vile men, these masters uh, of the slave girl. He's using them now to bring a straight-on frontal attack against our missionaries. So they assault them. And it says there that the reason they assaulted them in verse 19 is that these masters saw that their hope of profit was gone. So in, a, in a, these vile men in an angry rage come after Paul and Silas because they've taken away their profit. Now the fortune-telling slave girl is no longer useful to them. So that's at their heart. Now they're going to, they're going to give a, a politically correct motive. They're going to conjure up a motive, and that's always the case, isn't it? That's, that's a means of fallen man justifying his sin. So they're going to conjure a motive here. But Scripture tells us right away what's at the heart of this. The heart of this is their greed. They were losing profit, and it's covetedness. That's what brought them to greed. That's the sin. And it brings them to this, this action to now lay hold of Paul and Silas, and they'll bring them before the magistrate. Um, why only Paul and Silas? Well, uh, we're going to see here that they mention uh, they play on the crowd's uh, prejudice against the Jewish people. So there's some built-in prejudice there, and they'll play on that a little bit, and they're going to play on uh, their patriotism. Remember, this is a colony there at Philippi that was originally um, formed 
by former soldiers. So these are this predominant role of, of uh, retired soldiers in that community and the community sprang up around that. So you can see a great deal of patriotism there and holding to the Roman way, holding to the Roman law. And so that's ingrained in the culture. And so they play a bit on that uh, in terms of being prejudiced against the, the, the Jewish community. But a couple of things we should note, uh, the Jewish community can't be a threat there. It can't be very prevalent. I mean, there, there may not even been enough men, Jewish men to form a synagogue. That's possibly they, they had enough, but maybe not. And that would at least require 10 men. And even if uh, there were a synagogue there, the men were not prominent seemingly because we do not see them at the place of prayer. Or uh, they, they, they do not seem to be very uh, prevalent there in the culture at that place and, and certainly not holding a threatening role. But nonetheless, uh, the men are, are building a case for themselves. And so this is a veneer. And part of it is their prejudice against the Jewish community. And Paul and Silas are Jews. So that's probably why they've taken Paul and Silas, uh, because they are Jewish. The other two, um, Luke and Timothy, uh, apparently were not charged. So uh, Luke was a Gentile. Luke was a Gentile from, from Syrian Antioch. And we know that Timothy was a half Gentile. He was from uh, Lystron, and uh, we know his mom was Jewish, but his father was Gentile. And in a Gentile community like Philippi, he would have been viewed as a Gentile. So that may it may have been just that simple, that they were not viewed as Jews, and therefore they were not charged, but they took the leaders of the missionary band, which was Paul and Silas, and they really played upon their, their Jewish heritage to try to build contempt and hate from the mob that was that was uh, uh, beginning to gather there. So they seize these men, and again, they sort of hide behind their veneer of civic pride, and they invent this cause for really their cruelty and their greed. So they sort of conjure a case here, and notice the language as they go on. In verse 20, it says, they brought them before the chief magistrate, and, and they said this, these men are throwing our city into confusion by, by uh, being Jews. In other words, they were just saying, you know, uh, they're Jews. You know what those Jews do. They just go around stirring up trouble. And so they're, uh, they're bringing this, this, this uh, city into confusion. They're throwing uh, the, whole, the, the whole place out of, out of order, out of sorts. They're, if you will, um, disrupting the whole place. And so it's that that's the veneer. That's all they have. In verse 21, it says, they're proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. So now they, they claim Roman law. And again, they, they, they play on patriotism there of the culture. And they're saying these Jewish men are coming in here and they're, they're, they're stirring up trouble. And they're doing so in a manner that is, uh, that is not acceptable for Roman law. But in actuality, the charges are, are really, um, they're, they're, they're trying to bring about an illegal religion and they're disturbing the peace in doing so, but nothing could be further from the truth. That's not the case. So they're not stirring up anything. They're not trying to get these Roman citizens to do anything unlawful. 
And actually, if you remember, we'll see this a few verses later. Paul and Silas both are indeed Roman citizens, though. So they're being uh, violated as Roman citizens by being held this way. And we'll see they're being that, that, that they, they are beating and then they're thrown into prison. So actually, their Roman uh, citizenship is being violated. But all the claims here, all the claims by, by these uh, um, vile men, by these masters of the slave girl are bogus. They're bogus claims. Rome allowed the conversion to Judaism. Roman citizens were allowed to convert to Judaism. Again, we don't see many Jews there in that culture, so uh, there, there can't be a fear of, of a Jewish uprising or disturbing the peace because of these men being Jewish. They were just playing on the prejudice there within the culture. And Rome was very tolerant of all kinds of religions. I mean, this is a hotbed of pagan idolatry. This place is full of worship. Pagan worship of all kinds are on every street corner. So Rome's tolerant of these things. They're tolerant of all kinds of religion. That wasn't the problem. But here's the issue. It's the truth. The truth of the gospel offends the spiritually dead soul that's in bondage to the prince of this world, Satan. That's the problem. These men are coming with the truth of the gospel, and that's what's offensive. And the slave girl has been uh, set free by the power of Christ, and that's what's offensive. Now it's hit their pocketbooks. And so they, they come at these men, and again, they come with veneer of something that seems self-righteous and right within the culture and appeals to Roman law and appeals to a common prejudice there against Jewish folk. But at the base of this is the sinful heart of men, motivated by covetedness, moved by greed, and in hatred of the gospel because of their fallen nature and their sinful hearts. That's what we're seeing play out here. So their claim, they're claiming peace would be disturbed. And again, it's, it's like uh, so many politicians in so many contexts throughout the history of man. And, and we're no different here in our culture, even though we have a wonderful constitution. So many uh, people that um, legislate policy among any, even any given citizenry will often give this veneer of it being for brotherly love and for liberty. But in reality, it's the motivation is, is a self-motivation to line one's pockets. It's greed, it's covetedness. So they present a pretty picture, but uh, behind it all is their greed. And so they want these men in prison. They want them put to death. But they want it because uh, they were the cause or they were the source of their money drying up. And so they're claiming peace would be disturbed, but they know nothing about these missionaries' message. Nothing has been demonstrated for them uh, that would be any reason to be opposed to them. It's mere contempt for Christ. That's what's going on here, a contempt for Christ. That's what you see exercised here in space and time. And so in verse 21, it says that, again, they're proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept because we're Romans. And so here they're placing the Roman civil law, which was, was uh, Roman law was excellent. 
It was exceptional, but it's not above God's word. And here they're claiming their decrees. They're boasting about the decrees of man, decrees of falling man. And here they have no concern for the law of God. So they're placing the law of Rome above the word of God. But God's word prevails, right? And all excellent things, and again, Roman law was excellent, but all excellent things of this world are subject to God. And no rule of man will usurp the word of God. That will not be the case. And so they continue, though, in verse 22, and now they stir up the crowd. It says that the crowd rose up together against them. The crowd rose up together against Paul and Silas, against spurred on by these evil masters. And then the chief magistrates. Now, again, they're in they're in play here. And it says they tore the robes off of Paul and Silas. Really, they would strip them down till they were they were naked. And in front of the, the whole mob there, they proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Now, this is one of three times that Paul himself will be beaten with rods. And so now this is this is this act, this heinous act has been given a. Uh, 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 credibility by the local authorities. So the local authorities get involved and basically they, they defer to mob rule. Now the, now the mob has been stirred up. So there, there's no trial. There's no bringing of charges. There, there's no legal charging uh, of Paul and Silas with any violation of any law. There's simply mob rule. And I would say, given our current climax, climax does it ring a bell? Mob rule is never good. There needs to be rule of law. There needs to be due process. Uh, that's honoring to God. And what we, we do not see that here. What we see is a, an overflow of mob rule. And the magistrates just roll over and give way to it. So they, they legalize, if you will, and give credence to this heinous act. And so the crowd rises up. And the mob goes uh, along with these vile men. And then they rage against our apostles our missionaries here. And that's true always. These are men who are carrying the gospel and know this. And we see this pictured here. Again, this is a nice picture and a nice uh, reminder. The world will rage against the gospel. That's what we see in verse 22. That's a little snapshot of that reality. The world, the fallen world, fallen man will always rage against the gospel. And that's exactly what we see here. So the, so the judges, they forget about the law, rule of law goes out the window. They don't even hear the case. They just let mob rule take over. They go with the mob violence and they beat Paul and Silas without even hearing, without even giving them a hearing. And what were they doing? Well, they were they were quietly praying out by the riverside. Uh, so that's not illegal. And they silenced this slave girl. And probably many people were probably thankful for that. That was certainly not illegal. Nothing illegal there. Nothing against Roman law. Yet we see this stirring up by a few bound men built into a, a, a big mob and ultimately mob violence prevails. And verse 23 says, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. So now they've been beaten illegally because this was out this was without without being charged no crime had been charged to them they were just uh, it, it was just it, the the mob took over and the, and it it just it evolved into that and the magistrates just um gave in 
And so they beat them. In other words, that's a punishment given them when no crime has been charged. And then they jail them. And to jail, to jail them is to hold them. That's for holdings supposedly uh, awaiting uh, to be tried for a crime. But they've already been beaten and punished for a crime that they were never tried for. So you, you see uh, the, the awful uh, uh, unrolling of this evil act here. And so they're beaten and jailed without being charged for a single crime under Roman law. And so how do we think of this as we come to a close this morning? How do we think of this in terms of application for us? Well, let me say this. This is a rough beginning for our missionaries. Uh, again, given the context they came out of where, where it was, everything was going wonderfully and the churches were just flourishing and many people were coming to Christ. And it was uh, this missionary context that, that every follower of Jesus Christ would dream of. And God calls them away, far away on a very difficult, physically difficult journey. And then ultimately across the Aegean Sea into Philippi, into Europe where they are confronted with darkness. Now, there is this glorious reality of a church. God, God saves this young lady, Lydia, her whole household, and a church is started. And that is glorious, but it is still difficult compared to the context they were in. And then, after this glorious reality, they're confronted. Satan shows up and shows up in a big way. And ultimately, that all unfolds into a mob of Gentiles, dragging them into the, uh, into the magistrate, dragging them before, uh, and then the magistrate dragging them before uh, the mob and stripping them down and beating them with rods and then jailing them. And again, the desire of these men that, that started the whole process, that they, that they will have the death sentence. They will be put to death. That's the desire. All over covetedness, the sinfulness of man. But here we are, a rough beginning to the work that has been undertaken under the call of Christ. It was God, through the Holy Spirit of God, that called them away to carry the gospel of Christ into Europe. So this is God's call on their life, as it is God's call on our life, where uh, as he carries us into our particular context of ministry and sharing of the gospel. And at this point, I think we could safely say that lesser men may have questioned the call. But it's not good right now. And remember this, great Christian work has small beginnings. Remember we talked about that? Great Christian work has small beginnings. So what do we do? What do we do when we have rough beginnings? What do we do when we're hit with uh, um, situations where uh, Satan goes on the offensive, whether it be subtle or, or open rage? And it begins to cost us to some degree. What do we do? Well, trust, obey, remain faithful. That's the answer. Look, just because the strong winds blow against you, just because the salty spray uh, uh, dashes against your face, that is no reason to believe that you were, you were not to set sail from the harbor. None whatsoever. The missionaries here were beaten. 
But know this, you, we're going to be beaten up a bit in the Christian life. Some of it may be a real physical beating like these missionaries undertook. That happens to Christians. God has spared us in our context from things like that to a large degree at this point. But that's part of it. But we're going to be beaten, whether it be physical or otherwise. To some degree, we're going to be beaten for carrying the gospel, for being uh, ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's going to take place. But know this, like Paul and Silas, their beating left marks. Our beatings, whatever they may be in whatever form they may take, they're going to leave marks. But the marks are esteemed in heaven. They're marks of Christ's worth. That's what we must understand. That's what we must glean from this uh, 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 glaring greed that escalates into the beating of these missionaries. These marks are esteemed in heaven. They were mistreated, but they were not shamed. You may be mistreated for, for your taking a stand for the gospel, for you carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you will never be shamed. And that is a great comfort to the Christian's heart. You will never be shamed. Rather, you will be renowned. You will be renowned where it matters most. You will be renowned in heaven. You will be renowned in glory because you are hidden in Christ. And that's grace. That's grace that's been extended to your life. Their suffering was a remnant of Christ's suffering. And every, suffer, every suffering that you have in the name of Christ is just the same thing. Your suffering is a remnant, a little piece, a little part of Christ's suffering on your behalf. Isn't that glorious? That's the great hope here. That's the great uh, uh, spiritual eye that's pictured in this severe beating. So here for them, the cross turns to triumph just for us in the same way the cross turns to triumph. We triumph in the cross. You may be mistreated for the sake of the gospel, and the mob may accuse you. They may accuse you of hate. They may accuse you of, uh, of evil behavior. But in reality, the gospel defends you. The gospel brings you no shame. In reality, the gospel is you being made right with God. Jesus Christ coming and breaking into your life and bearing your sin debt before a holy God and imputing his righteousness into your life, into your account, if you will, that you may stand justified before a holy God. And then that life from that life on forward, from that life forward, that your, your new life, your new life in Christ is a there is, is an ongoing war against evil. You may be accused of evil. You may be accused of misdeeds. You may be accused of heinous things. But in reality, your life is warring against evil based on God's standard. And that's all that matters. You war against the evils of your old life. You war against the evils of Satan in this world. You war against the evils of this fallen world. And you war for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there you are esteemed. There you are renowned. So your suffering for the gospel's sake is esteemed in heaven. Your, your suffering will always forevermore be esteemed in heaven. So see the heinousness of this text. And although it's grievous, it's scary, it's frightening, know the spiritual truth behind it. These marks that these men bore are marks, are, are, are remnants of the marks of Christ that he bore on our behalf. And the same is true for you. Let's pray this morning. Gracious Father, I thank you for, for our time here. I thank you for your glorious grace. 
I thank you for this text uh, that that's kind of pulls back the veil and lets us see the bigger picture of the great cosmic battle and how that you are eternally victorious. And um, our hope that is hidden with you and you is an eternal secure hope. And whatever comes our way, this side of glory, it, 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 it comes our way through the power and majesty of Christ that reigns over our lives. It comes our way through your sovereign hand for our good. However uh, um, frail our emotions may be at the time to understand that or to line up with that beautiful truth, we know in our souls that it's true. And so whenever we suffer for the gospel, how little or how large or however we want to try to splice that or understand it, we know firm and sure that our suffering is hidden in Christ and confirmed in Christ and made glorious in Christ. For you have saved us in Christ alone. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.